What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here inside the war room. And guess what? Special news. We're back on YouTube. And so um, we took a little hiatus, but more and more of our episodes will be back. Not all of them, but we are going to start putting more of them back on there. Okay. So you can find that at warroommedia.com. I'll link to that in the show notes, which are at where? RyanRaySenior.com. Okay. So today we have on a pretty popular YouTuber. Um, uh, goes by the name of, on YouTube as Destiny, but um, that's not his actual name, of course. His name is Steven. Uh, and so he streams pretty much every day. He talks um, politics and from a progressive standpoint, but he has on a lot of debates with uh, conservatives and right-wingers. And he's pretty critical of, I think, all sides. And so it's worth uh, checking out his stuff. I enjoy it. Um, and so anyways, I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes. But let's get to my talk with Stephen slash Destiny. Well, Stephen, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Okay, awesome. Well, let's get into it. Um, you, I think, are one of the more fascinating people that, I, that I've come across, um, at least in the online sector. You've uh, carved out a pretty good niche for yourself uh, where you kind of have these debates and you kind of are live streaming all the time. I'm just curious what kind of got you into the, the live streaming uh, political genre and gaming space. Started streaming 12 years ago, originally as a StarCraft II player, then was kind of like a semi-professional StarCraft II player, then just played a bunch of games. And then around 2016 with Trump, me and along with half the internet decided to jump into politics more full-time, I guess. And did you find that when you jumped into the political realm, um, did you grow your audience? Did you lose some of your audience? Was it controversial for the, or did your audience kind of already know where you set politically? Um, they'd already kind of known. We'd talk about a lot of different things on stream. Uh, even when we were playing games, we'd talk about a lot of different things, a lot of different topics. So it wasn't like a big mystery where I stood on most things. Yeah. And going back to what about Trump made you want to jump into politics? I just saw that like around the time that Trump started running, it seemed like all of the conversations politically were getting really, really bad everywhere. Like there was a lot of factual disconnect between both sides. So I thought I could join and do a little bit better. And, and I'm guessing that was from an anti-Trump perspective. Is that correct? Um, mainly from an anti-Trump perspective, but there are a lot of things that the left gets wrong as well. So, yeah. So for me, um, one of the things that, that I've kind of observed was Trump running kind of pulled the curtain back, if you will, of maybe the nastiness that's, that's kind of all around there from, from all sides. And it was kind of a mirror into, um, maybe what you would see from the political elite or the corporate media, if you will. Um, they're kind of able to play this game and then Trump for better or worse was able to kind of pull that back and kind of show that, that there's just a lot more nasty people than maybe most folks realized. Maybe. Yeah. It's one no. way to look at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Disagree. I think that we all kind of saw um, that there was a little bit more in the United States in terms of capacity for certain types of thought or certain types of attacks or certain types of political ideas. I think when Trump ran for sure. So um, I'm curious. So would you say that you said you, you don't necessarily just agree with that. So um, I think during the, so I'm 30 for your perspective, the audience knows I'm 37. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from, from my perspective, I always kind of felt like, um, you know, the, the right-wing media would, um, you know, kind of bow to the right-wing candidate. The left-wing media would kind of bow to the left-wing candidate. Uh, and then, then when Trump comes along, it seemed like the, 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 um, the, the what you call, I guess, the left-wing media, if you will, really started examining things for the first time in my life to a degree they hadn't before. Like, they didn't really examine the Iraq war stuff on, on a deep level. Uh, a lot of the Obama stuff was kind of swept under the rug. Um, and so now, the, now all of a sudden, everything that Trump did was really analyzed. 
and to the point of, of, of silliness in the right wing media, obviously kind of um, played the role that they have historically played, but it seemed to push them a little bit more. Um, I don't know if unprofessional is not the word, but the, the antics that they would use kind of mirrored on some level what Trump was doing. That, that, that'd be more of what I'm saying. Maybe. I mean, I think there's always been a lot of pedantry, a lot of silliness. It just kind of depends on what you're looking for. You know, you've got like Trump, Fox News covering segments of Obama wearing like a gray suit or using Dijon mustard. Or, you know, you could say that like uh, Democrats were witch hunting Trump over, you know, stuff related to Ukraine or January 6th. But then on the Republican side of things, you know, you've got Benghazi and Hillary's emails. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think politics has always been like a pretty nasty game. But I think we're getting into more unique times in human history with social media to where all of us are super plugged in, super engaged and are expected to have an opinion on everything and can, you know, express an opinion on everything to the entire world. So the political engagement is starting to feel a bit different. It's funny because one of the, you brought up the, the type of suits Obama wore. And I remember, I don't know who it was, but they were like, oh, uh, President Obama didn't wear a suit into the Oval Office. And, you know, you always wear a suit into the Oval Office. And it's like, well, OK, if, you know, North Korea is sending a nuclear weapon, do you want him to put the suit on at 2 a.m., mm-hmm. go down there? And so there there, there definitely has been a sense of, of, of silliness um, historically. But you talk about moving everyone's in the discussion now. I'm always torn. What percentage of Americans do you actually think are engaged in the political conversation? Because it's online. You know, you can definitely find crowds that are super tuned in and you can find crowds that are kind of oblivious to it. So is it really that most that more people are tuned in or is it just that you can find those people now? I think more people are tuned in. I think these social media platforms are growing um, at huge rates. You know, it was Facebook initially, now it's Twitter, TikTok. So I think there are more people plugged in. It's a mistake to think that 95 percent of the American population is on Twitter, of course. I'm sure it's probably... I don't know if it would be less than half actually this point. I'm, I'm sure the numbers aren't as big as some people might think, but not only are the social media platforms growing, I think people in real life are expected to have political opinions on everything. We're starting to feel that way in a lot of areas. Like everybody's supposed to have an opinion about Leah Thomas. Everybody's supposed to have an opinion about the Ukraine where everybody's supposed to have like strong opinions about everything, even if you don't really know what's going on. So yeah, I think even if we're not at a point where 98% of Americans are plugged into Twitter, tweeting constantly about whatever Pelosi or Trump is saying, it feels like it's trending in that direction. So you do a lot of debates and cover a lot of ground. I, I was watching the other day that you um, um, you had a stream where I think you talked about schizophrenia. You, you cover a lot of uh, ground. So how do you balance um, having an informed opinion over all these things and maybe staying away from topics that you don't know about? Or do you kind of say everything's free, uh, open game and I'm going to talk about whatever I, I feel like? How, how do you balance that? I think everything's open game. I'll usually, um, I get emails from people that, so you mentioned the schizophrenic thing. A couple of things related to schizophrenia had come up, I think a couple of weeks ago. And I had a few people email me who said they're either schizophrenic or schizoaffective. Um, and they wanted to come on and chat about their experience. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. So yeah, whatever people want to talk about, if it's interesting to me, then yeah, we'll have them come on and we'll chat. And, and do you consider yourself as a naturally curious person? Yeah, for sure. It's probably one of my biggest strengths for doing like this type of content is I'll sit and read a study or a Wikipedia article or a news article or some huge profile for an hour or two on stream and you know, I'll kind of learn something from it. Yeah, so I am curious about that. You, you talk about doing stuff on stream. You're usually gaming during stream and you're probably gaming right now. If, if I had to no, guess. I'm not. Not right now. How do you balance being tuned into these conversations while gaming? Um, usually if it's a certain type of debate, it's probably going to be an argument tree that I've ran down a million times before. So I don't really have to think much about it. I just kind of say whatever. Um, if it's a challenging conversation and you watch me, or I shouldn't say say whatever I, I like, I know the proper response to everything. Um, if it's a challenging conversation though, and you watch me play a game in the background, usually if you watch me playing the game, I'm just like running around in circles because I'm like trying to focus a lot on the conversation. So, 
um, yeah, I, I can't like play a complicated game and dedicate my mind to that and like dedicate my mind to a really complicated conversation at the same time. It's just not possible. What value do you define it? Do you find in debating? Um, what I mean, there is what is the value of debating and what value do I find in debating? So I like debating because I like the idea of there's this concept called commensurability, right? If, if, if I'm trying to add three fifths and, uh, you know, like one tenth together, I, I can't do that. I have to find a way to make the denominators the same. Um, and in making those two things commensurate, they can be talked about and compared and analyzed. I don't like video essays. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say I don't like them. They have their place, video essays and, and all these things where you are on your own because you can talk about the issues that you want. But I like debating people, arguing people because I have a set of beliefs, they have a set of beliefs, and we need to find a way to make it so we can communicate to each other despite our differences in beliefs and find some sort of like common or middle ground. And that idea of commensurability, I think, is like the hallmark or the cornerstone of a functioning democracy. I think more and more today, we're all, in some ways, people keep saying that we're becoming more uh, you know, people on the right will say we're too diverse. You know, it's falling apart because of this. we're actually becoming unbelievably homogenous, just in two different groups. Where the 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 ideologies of of this tribe and of this tribe are, like, you you have to match up on almost every single idea in order to be accepted into these groups. Um, and it seems like we're all getting like more different or whatever because we're, because you see these two groups. But if you look at just the two groups in isolation, you can see that there's this ideological purity that I don't know if there ever was there before because we can enforce it via these really strict internet things. So yeah, I, I just, I like the idea of debate because you can pull people out of their circles and then you argue with them and they're forced to kind of consider uh, another person's idea instead of the caricature of that person that they'll probably see in their own group. Have you ever had your mind change, not from listening to a debate, but by participating in a debate? Yeah, for sure. I've, there are really intelligent people I've argued with that I've had like my mind shifted on different topics over the years. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the things when I've watched debates is um, a lot of times it's it's as if the two debaters aren't actually listening to each other as you mentioned most of the time if they're good debaters they've researched they know what's coming they know the arguments where it's going and so they're more trying to counteract what's being said uh, mm -hmm. than actually um, listening so what does it take to persuade you in a debate um i'm i like facts and figures so if you can show me that my argument is factually incorrect or if you can show it's deductively incorrect like i'll, I'll probably change my mind it's um, it might not happen like immediately uh, because we're we, all of us have egos, all of us can be pretty sure. heated in a debate. But like, yeah, if somebody challenges a position I have, I don't have a good response. Usually, over time, that'll I'll probably start to shift on it, or I'll do more research for my position. Yeah. And so, are you looking to do more larger scale? I mean, you obviously have a pretty good uh, YouTube following, but are you open to doing like more larger uh, in uh, in person debates at maybe at colleges and stuff like mm -hmm. that, or do you kind of like the uh, confined? I don't say confined, but the internet environment where it's just kind of a no, I, no out no background noise if you will yeah i like i like live events a lot actually i think the uh, energy is a lot different i like to be able to see a person in front of me um i've been doing more of those those have been ramping up a lot over the past year um i was just in new york city for an event um i've gone to a few colleges several colleges i think over the past year um yeah any of these types of, of live conversations i think are, are are really good so looking to do more of those and is your read that these um colleges and universities are open to having uh debates or Kind of the perception that you know uh, you're gonna get get people you know tromping in and, and hollering and yelling and shutting shutting down debates. What's been your experience? So far, they've been pretty open to it, but we'll see. Um, and if I do a really big one, maybe that'll change. Uh, yeah. And so you debate topics that you, that you disagree with, and so I think part of the the process you're talking about earlier that, that should be considered is that if you um, uh, considered a debater or subject matter expert on one side is willing to engage with someone else, uh, at least there's a sense in which 
um, you're not endorsing the position, but it's a position that, that the public should hear uh, as a debater. And it feels like we've kind of lost that. If, if someone's willing to debate someone, um, then at least half of the debate team is saying that this other side um, should be heard. And I don't know why that's a controversial opinion in you know 2022. Is it because of the split that you mentioned or is it because everyone's got a voice now? And, and, and you know. there's people have built a lot of dumb reasons why, you know, certain ideologies can't be heard. And we've kind of we've kind of moved into this area where the idea is that like just hearing something or learning about something is intrinsically harmful. So on the left, you know, they might say that if we allow certain types of speech to be pervasive across college campuses, it'll turn people into Nazis or fascists. On the right, you've got people saying that if we teach CRT or if we have trans people in certain areas, it's going to cause people to groom kids or it's going to cause people to um, hate America. Um, so yeah, people have gotten, it's kind of weird because it, maybe it's always been like this or maybe it did change, but it felt like 20 years ago that there was, even 20 years ago, I'm only 33, but it felt like there was this kind of an attachment to like the idea of freedom of speech and the marketplace of ideas. And we live in a democracy. We're not always going to agree. Um, you know, I might not agree with what you have to say, but I'll die if you're right to say it, et cetera, et cetera. Those, that was kind of like the line of thought. But nowadays it feels like both sides are pushing very hard on this. Like if we allow the other side to have the speech they want, it's going to destroy the fabric of our country. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I've thought about on that is, um, the speech that you're concerned about, not not you, but but people mm-hmm. generally, is speech that um, is is in a power, in a power context. So, for instance, my neighbor next door at his house saying whatever he says, it doesn't infect, it doesn't impact my life one way or another. He's doing his thing, I'm doing my thing. Um, however, the speech that's giving at a local town hall meeting or in front of millions of people now, all of a sudden, you might persuade minds. And so, it seems like the speech that people are actually concerned about is the speech that could persuade other people. So, right. Sure. But I mean, that's all speech, right? I mean, you got to allow that's that's kind of part of our buy into a democracy. You have to be able to let people speak. And if you're so worried that somebody else's speech is going to be so attractive to somebody, or it's going to turn minds a lot. I think that says a little bit more about your position than theirs. Like, and that's kind of the issue that I've had with a lot of people on the left. Are you so unconfident in your platform that as soon as somebody hears something else, they're going to magically turn into a Republican or a Nazi or a fascist? Like, that seems to be pretty sad. If that's the case, your position seems either untenable or just unsustainable. Oh no, I I agree with you. I'm just saying that I think that the the speech is actually tied to um, it's tied to power. Like it's it's mm-hmm. it's not that people are concerned about speech per se. It's speech that's that could persuade minds. Um, Maybe sure. So, yeah, and so if you look at like um, you know the the whole deplatforming thing, it seems that the deplatforming is more tied to well, this person is getting a voice now, therefore they might they might sway people. But you know, if someone's at their house, I don't think people actually care what they're saying uh, in the confines of their home or in a small circle of friends, it's more tied to the, to the power dynamic at large, which is mm-hmm. why, you know, you see someone like, you know, Alex Jones or uh, Alex, uh, who's the, who's the uh, Alex uh, Berenson, something like that, that they, they, they amass a large following. They talk about controversial things. People are concerned. And so they move for the deep platform there, whether or not at the house, if you think of, if, if you agree with what Jones says or not, it seems to be a lot less. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned on the left that you're, you kind of push back that people might be Nazis or fascists. Is that a, I mean, do you, th- what, what percentage of the Republican party would you say would fall into this Nazi fascist camp? Um, Nazism, very low. Um, fascism, depending how, how you define it. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of troubling currents of thought right now in the Republican party that need to be excised. Um, I, one like, thing that really scares me is the attacking of, the institution of the media seemed to be very pervasive under Trump. And then the institution of our electoral process. Um, those are two really important 
institutions for democracy and attempting to undermine or circumvent or attack those, I think is a really troubling sign. I think that should be very worrying to everybody. When Trump is saying things like, I want to open up libel laws to sue the media as I'm the president to keep them from publishing stories about me that I don't like, or when you're trying to say that, like, I think the election is faked. And even if you go through all the processes, it seems like that wasn't the case um, to continue to harp on that. Those are two scary things that you wouldn't want any leader kind of pushing into. But Yeah. So you have Trump. What percentage of the Trump uh, or the Republican Party do you think goes along with that? You think that's a majority um, or do you think it's a minority? I thought it was over 50% for the um, – I'd have to go and look it up. I thought it was like 50 or 60% of Republicans still thought that the election could have been stolen. Yeah. Well, um, I just – I'm sorry. I'm just, I check. I always check real quick. In June, no, no, no. poll after poll, about 70% of Republicans say they don't think Joe Biden is leg- the legitimate winner of twenty twenty of the 2020 election. I don't know if that means they think that the election was actually rigged or if they thought that some foul play happened somewhere else, but yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the election fraud thing um, – has been something of interest, not 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 of interest, but the, just the the narrative around it. Because um, from my perspective, uh, I went to, I was in D.C. the night of the election. I went on this cross country tour going mm-hmm. with all these, all these cities, and so I went to bed at like uh, one a.m. D.C. time. I thought Biden had won that night. That was based upon um, what I do on the presidential elections. Is I will follow the local reporters on Twitter, mm-hmm. see what they're saying is going to happen in their counties because they have a pretty good read on it. Uh, and so kind of reading what they're saying, it's like, okay, it looks like he's probably going to take this thing. That was election night. Um, it turned to be right. Um, now, as it moves forward, you know, to me, it was quite, it was, it was a weird debate because Trump starts saying, well, there's election fraud. It's like, well, right. There's always election, election fraud on some sense. Like, even if it's small, there's, there's some fraud that happens. That's not really a debatable point. It's what level did it, did it happen to? And it felt like we kind of lost the argument from the get-go, which is, no, this election was great, to, oh, this was taken. It's like, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like probably some votes were faked, but was there enough to change the election? I, I haven't seen any evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I, but it, it seemed like you couldn't be right there in the middle, which is, yeah, there's always election fraud, but probably not enough to overturn the election. Either, either you had to go all in or, uh, no, this was a great, uh, outstanding election. After hearing four years ago that, that the election was stolen, right? Well, I would push back on that. I think four years ago, there was um, a narrative in the Democratic Party that there was interference in terms of Russia doing things to advertise illegally for candidates in the United States. So, for instance, from the Mueller indictments, we got that there was an organization called the um, Internet Research Agency, I think, the IRA. And this was a front that had been established in the U.S. that had backing from the Kremlin that was obfuscated from the U.S. government, from the State Department. And they were using this organization to kind of like pay people to do things or advertise certain things. So insofar as that's concerned, I mean, that seems pretty incontrovertible. I don't know how many Republicans fight against this. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but that, I, I, in my opinion, I think that good evidence has, has been shown that that is the case. So in, insofar as there's like some interference in the election, sure. Um, I think in 2016, I think it's foregone. Now, were there votes changed? No, I don't think there's any evidence of that. But for the mainstream, uh, for the mainstream Democratic opinion, I don't think that that was, um, I don't think that was ever the case that they were saying that like, you know, maybe some people did, but that wasn't the the overwhelming narrative that, that the election was literally had votes stolen and votes rigged. And you look at like the difference in behavior, Hillary Clinton um, conceded that night, you know, it's not like the Democrats are trying to challenge the election or saying that like, oh, we think it was rigged, we needed to go look in here and here, like they conceded, you know, they were mad about Russian interference, but it was what it was. And then the, you know, politics continued as usual. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I would say the same thing about Russia interfering in the election as I would about voter fraud. I'm sure it happens 
every major election that they're doing something. So it's, mm-hmm. the question is, is, you know, what is the degree in which they're doing it? Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. And then also the, for the Trump uh, campaign, it was like, was there any sort of collaboration between anybody in Trump's campaign with the Russians would have been a big thing too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, right. So, but let's, let's unpack that for a second, because that's a debate that kind of uh, as society kind of swept over. Um, I mean, Hillary, Trump, whomever, insert candidate here, they all have large ties to, you know, very wealthy people and very high ranking government officials around the world. It, it would seem it would seem not possible for these presidential elections to happen. And these guys aren't calling in favors to various nations. Don't do this. You know, hold off on this or whatever to, to ask these things every four years. This I would imagine this is going on already. Maybe to some extent, but like calling, you know, foreign leaders and asking for dirt on candidates or, or making big asks probably not in the wheelhouse of ordinary politician behavior even if we hate politicians or if it is i haven't seen it expressed as much or discovered as much um well, okay I mean, it's possible it's happened yeah well let me ask you this so mm-hmm. um and this is again this is i'm just more generally speaking you, you know if you're an establishment um a politician that that's you know has good ends with the cia i'm sure you like i mean i think we've had plenty of documented cases where the CIA has, you know, ran interference in the countries. They've done stuff. They bribed officials. Mm-hmm. Leveraging some of those assets, I don't think is out of, outside the realm. When you go back and look at the Cold War era, um, you know, um, uh, Kennedy, uh, Johnson, Nixon, what those guys were doing. I mean, there was a ton of just crazy corruption that was going on, not just in the U.S. but abroad. And so, why we would think that stopped, I think, would be my thing. So I would say not necessarily about Trump or Clinton, just mm-hmm. a general, sincere skepticism that what we're seeing is good, honest integrity um, from both parties. Yeah, but I mean, I think we have to look at, there's two things we have to look at. One is there is a pre and post foreign policy of the United States from 1991 before and after, right? During the Cold War, we were obviously highly motivated to resist certain regime changes around the world that were moving in favor of communist governments or allegiance to the Soviet Union. And we were trying to roll people over to our side because there was kind of this like world war, the Cold War being fought, you know, between these this multipolar world with communism and capitalism against each other. So, I mean, in that sense, we definitely had that post 90s. I think our foreign policy was was quite a bit different. I don't think we we're as aggressively, you know, obviously we have some blunders like Iraq. Um, but I mean, we're not as aggressively like trying to tip things in other countries in the same ways that we were pre 91, pre fall of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. Um, also, another thing is when countries, when other countries are being interfered with, not that this makes it okay or acceptable, they tend to be like incredibly destabilized country, destabilized countries anyway, or these countries that are looking to external help for people to kind of like put their finger on the scale to change the, the powerful one way or another. You know, there's a big difference between the United States or Russia or Saudi Arabia, you know, having interference in places like Syria or Yemen versus finding out that like the United States is trying to influence the elections in like France or Italy or Germany, that would be a really big deal. Or finding out that like the United Kingdom is trying to influence the elections of like, even like Mexico or Canada, that would be a really big deal. So I think that just because we've seen some shady behavior or inappropriate behavior in the past, and just because we see modernly, um, some sorts of like, I'd say maybe inappropriate behavior in other countries in the present and destabilized countries doesn't mean that we should expect to see these like big changes in elections across the world from one like sort of first world country to the other. I think that would be pretty unprecedented or, or maybe not unprecedented, but it would be, there would be a lot of people that are like, what's going on here? Like, why is Australia trying to, you know, funnel money illegally into New Zealand to elect a different leader or why is, you know, like the, yeah. 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 So I'm with you there. I think, I guess for me, um, 
I think most Americans, um, when they're polled and they ask, and, and you might want to look it up, but there's a poll like, you know, what percentage of Americans trust politicians? And it's like, you know, 10, 20%. And right. I always joke that they're thinking about the other guy. Like they're thinking about the Republican right. or the Democrat. Yeah, they're not thinking about their own person. Uh, and for me, it's, it's it's better to sit from a position of a real skepticism that if this person is saying they want your vote, they're probably lying to try to convince you that they're going to do things that they're probably not necessarily motivated to do. Um, they're more interested in the vote. And if you start this, with a position of skepticism, then you hear these stories come out. It's like, yeah, that, that's actually within the realm, whether it's Pelosi or whether it's Trump or whether it's Hillary Clinton or Biden or whomever. And I don't think Americans have that skepticism. And that would be more of what I'd be pushing for. Have the skepticism of what? That both sides are equally corrupt or, oh. or high levels of corruption. I think we we look at – so if you're, if you're a Trump voter, you look at Hillary Clinton and go, oh, she's corrupt. Lock her up. Biden stole the election. But Trump, eh, it's all good. And if you're a Hillary voter, you go, oh, man, Trump's the worst. Biden's oh, great. maybe, yeah. People are always selectively critical of, of people that they disagree with. Yeah, of course, unfortunately. But, but should we push for a more skepticism of both parties is really what I'm getting at. Um, I think skepticism is good, but I think a fundamental mistrust of our institutions and saying that they failed us is bad. Skepticism is good because it keeps things honest. Uh, mistrust of information or of institutions is bad because it means the collapse of society and you can't really function anymore. So, yeah, it's hard to balance out that you should be critical of something, but accepting of its you know place in the world and, and the role that it has to play. Why do you think mistrust of, of the institutions would be a collapse of society? Um once we come together as a large group of people, we can't really effectively govern ourselves. Um, I can't make laws for other neighborhoods. I can't figure out what the policy should be on like river drinking water, you know, upstream. Uh, I don't know what trade should look like between the states. At some point, we have to create these external institutions that embody the will of people across the country that enact that will in a way that allows us all to function. So we can all agree on what the regulations should be on how dollars are spent on what taxes should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you start to undermine those institutions, what you do is you fundamentally disconnect from being able to affect society in a, in a positive way. Um, so, and, and then the other alternative actions that you have available to you all become dystopian. So for example, if we look at like the uh, criminal justice system and you say, I don't trust cops, that doesn't work. So what do you, what's the, you know, what's the prescription? Well, if you see anybody breaking into something, don't call the police, don't do anything. Well, okay. Well now you've got people that are breaking into houses. People are too scared to call cops. Your criminal justice institution has failed. Well, now what happens? Vigilanteism, people take matters into their own hands. That's not an ideal society. When you look at the, uh, the voting booths, right? Well, you say that the, the polls have all been rigged and the, uh, and the votes have been rigged themselves. Like we, we can't even trust who's being voted for president. Well, well now what do you need to do? If you don't trust that the elections are legitimate, well, I need to go storm the Capitol. I need to make my voice heard that this isn't right. It's like, okay, well, that's not good. If, our, if we don't trust our vote, then like people are going to start, you know, protesting elections. Not in that I don't like this guy, but then I don't think this guy is legitimately elected. Um, so yeah, I think the faith that the institutions are functioning, even if we ought to be skeptical in them, is the most important cornerstone of a functioning democratic society. Because necessarily in a democracy, you're going to have a lot of people that really disagree with each other. And it's not functioning for all of these different people to be enacting all of their will in all their different areas. We have to have some codified um, general morality, codified general system that we all agree to work under, even if we don't like it at times, in order for the country to continue to function. Yeah, yeah. so I think you're definitely right that, you know, if you erode um, complete this, uh, trust of these institutions, um, you, you will see other problems. The, 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 but the pushback, I'd say, is is a lot of these institutions, I don't think, are necessarily in, are interested in what's best for most Americans um, because they are highly incentivized 
to you know work with big business and to do stuff in their interest. So how do you get a government organization that's not beholden to the voters to actually change how it's operating uh, to the best interest of the voters? That goes into a whole other discussion, um, but I, I think that the government actually is beholden to the voters, pretty hardcore. I think that people make a couple mistakes when they look at how the government functions, where they assume it's all bought by big business. But um, I, I think that when you look at different policies across the board, that I used to believe this a lot. I actually used to be a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 because my most important issue for voting was getting rid of any form of like lobbying or getting rid of any form of like corporations being able to spend money on elections. I wanted all of that gone. Citizens United, all that I thought was horrible. <clears throat> and I think it was actually a conservative that came on and he challenged me. And one of the questions he asked was, okay, so you believe that um, you believe that politicians are loyal to their true constituents, which are the, the corporations and the big donors. And I was like, yeah, of course they are. Like, look how much money these guys spend on elections. And the second question he said, so these guys are basically writing all the laws and they're getting past what they want, even to the chagrin of the American people. Even if they don't, even if the American people don't want it, you know, these corporations have to write their own laws. I'm like, yeah, of course, obviously this is how the game is played. And then he asked me a really simple question. And I had no answer. He's like, can you give me an example of what is something that enjoys broad popular support in the United States, but it can't get passed because lobbyists or corporations are pushing against it? And immediately I wanted to say like 30 things, but I actually didn't have a single answer to any of that. I'm like, fuck. And I thought about this over the next few weeks and months. And I'm like, you know, broadly speaking, if the American public wants something, it'll happen. It does happen. It might take a little bit sometimes. So there might be friction because of the Senate or because of the construction of the Supreme Court or because of the Electoral College when it comes to the president, but it will happen. The idea that the American public wants one thing, but corporations can push against it and make it not happen, I don't think that actually plays out. I don't think there are any major policy positions where I can see that happening. I do think that there are probably some edge cases where like, if we're going to talk about the amount of some additive add in some fuel, um, whether or not that's okay or not, where the American public doesn't have their eye on it, where corporations have an opportunity to step in and push. But I think largely speaking, I think the government actually represents the will and speaks of and, and by and for the American people. And I think when a lot of people look to our dysfunction of government right now, they're trying to look at the process. They're saying, well, what's wrong with it? Is the lobbying broken? Is the Senate broken? Is the Electoral College broken? Is the filibuster broken? Everybody wants to blame a process and say, this is why the government isn't working. But then when you turn your eyes from the government, which is supposed to express the will of the people, and then you look at the people and you see what in my eyes is a historic divide between left and right, where we are living in totally different epistemic realities. We don't see eye to eye on anything anymore. Then I look back at the government, I go, you know what? The government is supposed to represent the will of the people and the people are divided like they've never been before. It kind of makes sense that the government's not doing much or it feels like it's not representing us. It kind of makes sense that every side feels like the government is fucking them over because we have a legitimate divide in opinion in the United States. Well, okay. So to your point about a wide I – th I think you said what's a wide-sweeping policy that mm -hmm. most Americans agree on. <laughs> I'm not sure there's many of those out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the point though, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but beyond that, I mean I think you know, if you go back – if you look at how the Fed monetary system operates and you know how much money these companies make by being a part of the Fed and how they lend out money and how that works – there's all kinds of things that are happening with big business that the average American didn't get in. But the other thing, like look at Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. And I'm, I haven't heard your stance on Ukraine, so I'm not sure where you're at on the, uh, that issue. But you know, we're constantly sending money over to Ukraine. Um, okay, well, if you think that's a, a worthy cause, then you're not upset about it. But if you go, you know, hmm, I'm not entirely sure this is the best way to allocate resources. Who is benefiting from that? Well, that is some of the largest businesses 
that are tied to lobbying in the United States, the defense contractors. And so that would be just a, a simple example. Uh, one other example I'd give you um, is the um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Okay. And so that, are you familiar with that, that one? The, which one? It's the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I'm not familiar now. Yeah. So essentially what that says is, as an American citizen, you can pay a bribe anywhere in the world to anyone. Um, so if you're in pick country here, Nigeria, Venezuela, matter and you pay a bribe to a local official it's a felony in the united states okay. um and so to me that is a, 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 a easy example of a law that's passed that most americans aren't to your point maybe aware of but it shapes how international business is done um and it really uh, it really lends itself to big business having a huge competitive advantage or someone like myself who operates a small business trying to work in these foreign countries um but you can't really see that because it's just the way the law is and so people aren't familiar with like, oh, okay, this is the way the law is. So I suspect you, if you were to go through more laws, you might realize that more laws are, um, are, are shaped in a way that, that don't appear to be in favor of big business. Well, that, wait, so you said that these laws make it so it's illegal to bribe? Yeah. Wait, how does that favor big business? So what they'll do is they'll set up multiple corporations and they'll pay consulting fees. Mm -hmm. And so they'll, they set up um, these shell corporations inside these companies. I say shell corporations. Let me give you an example. Let's say me and you are wanting to go do a project in um, Brazil, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and a local official wants a bribe. Well, for me and you to, for me and you to pay that bribe is a felony. Um, but however, Exxon or whoever it might be, mm -hmm. uh, they will have a system all their lawyers where they can set up multiple corporations or one or two off corporations, hire these people in, give them jobs. So they, they, they figure out exactly how to work around the system. Whereas me and you don't have the legal um, uh, funding to go figure out. I exactly mean, I guess because it's, it's extremely yeah. expensive. I mean, there, that might be the case to some extent, but I mean, like, there's always going to be a disproportionate amount of power depending on who has money and whatnot. Like it's kind of hard to legislate that. Um, insofar as what you said earlier, the, this is like a common is a common thing I hear. People will talk about how like um, like why are we going to war in countries? Why are we doing things? Mm -hmm. It's because of the defense contractors. This is another thing where if you're trying to say that like people can have a disproportionate impact on our policies because of how much money they spend, I think that the defense contractor one is the easiest one to shoot down. Like if you look at Boeing, this is a company that's worth not even a hundred billion dollars. If you look at Lockheed, this is a company that's worth like a little over a hundred billion dollars. I think Raytheon is the most. I think they're like $140 billion. Like the market capitalization of like all of our defense contractors combined is like one fourth of like the size of Apple. <laughs> and when we go into wars and economies get crazy around the world, things like our tech companies will suffer. If it was the case that people were just paying money to dictate foreign policy, like you would expect to see people like Zuckerberg and Bezos would be hiring fucking assassins to kill people that are running our private contractors because they'd be like, bro, we're not going to war, fucking our economy up. We're losing so much value. There's no way, right? Like I feel like if, if politicians were truly making foreign policy decisions, we would be the most peaceful country in the world if our corporations are paying for it because I think our companies broadly just want the world to be pretty stable, want us to be able to sell shit. And I know that everybody kind of like looks, you know, really big eyed. They're like, oh my God, like we want to sell missiles to other countries in the world. And it's like, I don't think we want to sell missiles to other countries in the world. I think we want to sell iPhones. I think we want to sell our tech. I think we want people ordering shit off Amazon. Like this is where all the money is being made. Um, r rather than like looking at these military contractors who and, and thinking that like these guys who are pretty small fry compared to the size of our tech industry, rather than assuming those are the guys that are like running the the world's foreign policy, I guess. Oh, okay. So let's take Apple versus you know, Raytheon or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, Raytheon has really one customer. 
Mm-hmm. That's the United States of America. Like that's it. Like there, like with this, when Russia was going to go to war, there is no military industrial complex uh, the same way that there is in the U.S. You know, the, the the U.S. defense contractors are the main ones globally. So it's not as if um, they're having to compete with anybody else. So, so their market cap and how big they are is relative to the actual market available to them. And so mm-hmm. the U.S. controls who. So the U.S. is setting who enters that, which I'm sure. Atheon and those guys have conversations about, and then who they can sell to. So, sure. the, so, so they don't need a larger market cap. Whereas iPhone, uh, Apple is trying to sell an iPhone to everyone in the world, mm-hmm. uh, and the barrier to entry to that is is much lower. So, I, I don't. Well, what I'm saying is that, like, let's say, let's say that we're assuming why are we going to war in uh, in some country, and you go, well, it's because the private military contractors are like trying to bribe or pay off or lobby officials to do it. If that was the case, I would expect to see tech companies just lobbying in the direction. And then I would expect to see private military contractors not be able to compete because Apple or Facebook or Amazon is going to have 500 times the budget to sway foreign policy. If we're really saying it's just a matter of buying, you know, politicians, as opposed to these private military contractors that are like, you know, almost shrimp in comparison, sometimes one tenth the size of some of these other tech companies. So, so your argument is that um, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, would just simply counter lobby for there not to be war. If that was if that was how easy it was, right? But I think the uncomfortable truth is is I think a lot of these wars do get support from the American people sometimes, you know? And I think people sometimes forget, but after 9/11, you know, Bush could have went to war with any country oh, in yeah. the world and the American public would have supported him, you know? Absolutely. I, 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 yeah, so I think let me clarify what I'm saying is I'm not. I'm not sure that Raytheon CEO is calling up, uh, you know, Ted Cruz or Pelosi going, "Hey, we gotta go to war." You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they live in a world that that um, disproportionately sways how they view things by who they are influenced by, right? So they're talking to people that believe these type of things. Um, if you look at the think tanks and all these groups and the PR pieces, like there was a, I'll give you an example. Um, someone sent this to me the other day. Let's see if I can pull it up because you like a you like a. The articles. Someone sent this to me the other day about a Iran shipping oil illegally, and it's in the Wall Street Journal. Um, did you did you happen to see the article? If not, I'll pull it up here. No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, and so the article is um, U.S. as sanctions against global network it believes is shipping Iranian oil. Um, and, and so, if you go through here um, and, and look at this article from the Wall Street Journal. Nothing that they're reporting in here is really new. It's it's old news. Anyone that's followed the oil and gas industry would have known about this. It's, so I have a hard time believing that this is something new to the to the Wall Street Journal. But what seems more likely is that someone in the Biden administration or you know, whomever um, wanted this to be a story, and so they're making it a story. Um, I think that. So this is something else I push back on. I think there's a fundamental miscommunication. Well, it's possible that certain stories could get leaked. But I don't think that there are administrations that are dictating what's getting written because yeah, no, 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 yeah, I'm not saying okay. that. I'm like, okay, okay, sure, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, this is the big deal. Wall Street Journal reporter mm-hmm. or Bloomberg. I'm not picking on Wall Street Journal. Hey, this is a big deal. You should look at this. And then they write the story. It's like, well, anyone's been following this. This is not like this is an old story. Like, there's nothing new here uh, of substance. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that they're actually dictating. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. Um, but that does shape how the public views this, because if you don't follow this, this the, these stories, you might go, oh, my gosh, these Iranians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, they're illegally selling the oil. And oh, my goodness gracious. And so it makes it harder to to deduce, um, you know, is this really a news story or is this more, I don't say propaganda, but, but a, a PR piece is being put out? Yeah, maybe, possibly. I'd have to I'd have to read the story, I guess, and check. Sure. The yeah, yeah. No, I mean, let's go to the let's just talk about Ukraine for half a second. Um, mm-hmm. You know. 
when the Ukraine story came out, uh, you know, obviously they were invaded by the Russians. So everyone's like, hey, Russia's bad. But I'm not sure the story about we're trying to save democracy in Ukraine is an accurate representation of what we're trying to do there. I mean, so like, I think, I think what's happening is the United States is seen more or less still as the leader of the free world. And people look to the United States for guidance on foreign affairs. You have a historic, well, historic in that for the past 30 years, kind of one of the rules of, of the world is you don't invade another country and take territory from them. That's just not anything we, anybody does anymore. So Russia is invading Ukraine, undermining the sovereignty of the government because they're unhappy that a leader that they favored got deposed and they're using a bunch of strange excuses to do it. And the ultimate goal is to strip away territory from a sovereign state that Russia in 91 had recognized as having the territory that it did. This began with Crimea in 2014, and now it's continuing with uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and the Donbass. So with this happening, everybody's kind of looking at like, okay, well, it's a little bit strange that countries are back to invading each other and stealing territory. So I think the, the idea is that the United States is kind of supposed to take point on showing that like, okay, well, we don't accept this type of behavior. You know, we are the leader, arguably the leader of NATO. Um, people look to us as, as in terms of moral guidance and foreign policy guidance across the world for better or for worse. So the question becomes, do you stand by and do you watch Russia invade a country and take away territory or do you do everything you can up to the point of world war three and showing that you'll support other countries around the world whether we're talking about sorting supporting democracies or whether we're talking about supporting kind of the broad idea of the u.s hegemony um, i think this is what the, the the battle in ukraine is about and in that case i think the united states does have given how things have gone down i think the united states easily has the moral authority to function in ukraine right ukraine is being invaded by a foreign power that's trying to steal land from it under no good reason it's not like they have a, a good reason to go in and start doing that so yeah i, I think i i'm definitely in support of the united states and the western world pouring money and weapons into ukraine to help them fight off russia okay so the question i would ask is that the european allies um have supported russia and allowed them to continue to uh grow their economy which is you know relatively small but uh, but have grown their economy over the past you know 10 20 years by buying supplies for them and so this is what, what one of the things Trump was right about was that the Russians, um, the Europeans are buying uh, their energy from from Russia. And so they kind of made this deal with the devil. And now you're like, oh, well, well, you know what? Hey, these are bad guys. And it's like, you know, the Europeans have fueled the Russian economy to the point to allow them to potentially um, you know, stay where they are in the global scale. And so do you do you put any fault uh, on the Europeans for willingly being willingly trade partners with the Russians? Um, no, I mean, like under Yeltsin in the nineties, and I think even under, um, Putin, like there were talks of, you know, Russia potentially joining NATO at one point, um, after nine 11, the United States and Russia had a pretty friendly relationship when it came to sharing Intel related to terrorist activities. Um, I, I don't think it's the goal. Like there were questions before Ukraine for a long time of like, what even is the point of NATO? Why does NATO even need to exist? Like, you yeah. know, it seems like, you know, the Soviet union is gone. Um, seems nice to be in NATO cause nobody will fuck with you. But like, you know, it feels a little bit aimless. Maybe we need to move on to a different type of superstructure, you know, intranational or international structures. Um, but so so in that sense, I don't think that like Europe shouldn't have been like, I'm not trading with Russia or doing anything. The goal is always to build bridges and the goal is always to build these connections around the world to be more globalized, to, to, to have these positive relationships. So I don't think it's a fault that they were trading with Russia. I think that's good. I think we want that to happen. Arguably, one of the scariest things about trying to cut Russia off from parts of SWIFT or trying to sanction Russia is the more they're cut off from Western economies, the more they're kind of incentivized to just do wacky shit, right? Like if somebody can say, you know, hey, if you go and do wacky shit here, 
we're going to sanction the fuck out of you and we're not going to trade with you. Then it's like, uh, I don't know if I want to do it. But if Russia has its own complete Eurasian alliance, if they've got stuff working with China and they don't need anything from the West, well, now, you know, they've kind of got more incentive. Like, you know what? I am going to do this. If you don't like it, what the fuck do I care? You can't punish me for it. So I, I think that pushing for greater integration of nation states across the world is always going to be a boon if you're looking for like more peaceful uh, yeah. uh, organizations, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So, so we agree 100% there. I think the what I'd point out is, is that um, the that NATO is there to protect the Europeans from Russia. And so you're kind of like saying, hey, I want to do business with the mafia, but I need you to protect me from the mafia at the same time. And so it was kind of it's kind of a uh, instead of instead of going all in on the free trade aspect that you talked about, there was a free trade aspect. But oh, oh by the way, we need to expand the NATO borders constantly to protect us from Russia. And it's like, well, if you're afraid of Russia. Um, then maybe you shouldn't do business with them. But if you're if you think if you think that doing business helps, then do business with them. I, and I, I am in agreement that that is one way to open up these economies. Uh, but that's not the stance that the Europeans took. They wanted it from both sides. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends. I, like, I don't think that we necessarily saw Russia as adversarial after the '90s. Like, for whatever reason, the fall of the Soviet Union was incredibly peaceful. Um, Russia did do a couple of fucky things on their borders or on other places, you know, in Transnistria and in Georgia. Um, but generally, I think we weren't trying to have a highly adversarial relationship. And NATO technically really shouldn't be a threat to Russia at all. Because it's not like NATO countries are attacking Russia. And being in NATO should reduce the likelihood of any conflict. We literally have like a direct line from D.C., from the White House to the Kremlin, from D.C. to Moscow, to make sure that there aren't going to be these crossing of troops, that you never have U.S. troops firing on Russian troops. So, I mean, ideally, like more countries being in NATO should be relatively peaceful for both sides, unless Russia is upset and wants to fuck with somebody. But um I mean, yeah, I don't know. We're watching all this play out now, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, just hope it stops. <laughs> that, would be, that would be the best thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think is, um, you mentioned the split in the U.S. Um, do you think that's a bigger threat uh, to the U.S. than external factors like China, Russia, et cetera? Do you think the internal division is the biggest threat right now? To us or to right? Yeah, or to, no, to, what is the biggest threat to the U.S.? Just ask um, yeah, our internal division is really, really, really bad. Um, yeah. We're it's becoming so dysfunctional or have already become dysfunctional, yeah. Yeah. And so I was thinking about this the other day um, because I'm kind of like you, like, man, it's, it's really bad. And then I look back, I go, well, we did have a civil war. We had, you know, what's going on in the 60s and 70s. Do you think it's actually worse now or is it just because that maybe we're a little bit younger that we view it as worse? Um, I want to say on one end where we all suffer from kind of recentism where we're thinking that like, oh, it's the worst time ever. But I will say that there are unique forces that are working today with the Internet that make things feel a little bit different than they were in the past. Like we have the ability to divide ourselves now more than we ever have to self-select for ideologies, to punish people for betraying an ideology. Like we could do that because of the internet and social media in more effective ways than we ever could. And this is probably forcing more ideological purity on both sides in ways that's never happened. And that's probably a scary trend that I don't see reversing. And, and I don't want to uh, mislabel. You, you're, you would consider yourself a progressive, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that kind of part of your role here as a progressive talking to people who are non-progressives is to kind of maybe not bridge the divide on the thought, but bridge the divide on the peacefulness in which we engage each other. Both, I think. I think people are closer to each other than they realize. We just get so dug into different positions that like, yeah, it ends up being crazy, you know? Like even on the abortion stuff, like, um, I, 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 like ha I feel like you could get most of the country to agree on being pro-choice in like the first and maybe some of the second trimester. Like everybody maybe should be able to have an abortion after 20 weeks. I can understand some people being on the, on the right being upset about it, but I think there's a lot of moderate right-leaning people like, okay, fuck it. You know, you want to abort a baby at three weeks. Okay, fine. Um, but then on the left side, you know, like we probably shouldn't be having abortions, you know, at like month eight. 
that's a little bit fucking weird. Okay. You're pulling out like what well, looks like a fucking kid and you're chopping it out. Probably not a good thing, you know, but like on both sides, we, we just see people screaming for the most they can get right. People, some people on the left, you know, the loudest voices are as many abortions as you want, whenever you want to whatever trimester. And then on the right, it's like, you know, pro-life. And if the mother tries to have an abortion, we need to fucking kill her for attempted murder. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Um, we, we lose the ability to have any sort of conversation in the middle. We can't make compromises. Um, it, yeah, everything's just like totally dysfunctional. Where should abortion policy be determined? Who, who should? The federal, the state? Uh, that's a complicated question. Um, that uh, There's a lot of legal arguments over, <laughs> over no, no, that. No, not, not, not legally. I'm talking mm-hmm. about from your perspective, just um, aside from what the constitutional arguments might be. Um, it probably should be a federal level thing because what we're ultimately talking about is whether or not we're murdering somebody. And if that's the case, that feels pretty federal. Although I say that, but in actuality, things like murder, like our, these are state charges, these aren't federal charges. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that, I guess. Like on, on, when it comes to really big issues like this, um, I kind of like the idea of it being a federal thing. I do like the idea of states being able to try their own stuff as well. But when it comes to like really huge issues like this, I feel like we should all in the United States probably be on the same page about it. Yeah. And see, that's, I think that's part of the, the current, the, the point I was making earlier about, um, you know, I live in a, a very small rural county in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, how this county would function compared to what San Francisco would function is going to be completely different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the views, the morals, all that stuff. Um, and so it seems hard to say that, Hey, there are more people in San Francisco, uh, exponentially more, um, their policy should govern, um, how we want to operate in this County here or vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, I've often thought, you know, could, is there a way to even go down to a, a more of a County level to where it's inside the state? Um, and then you can actually sway the votes quite freak, uh, quite more, um, uh, impactfully because, you know, the local mayor, you can, you can actually access, uh, where, mm-hmm. where we're at. And so, um, I've often wondered maybe even, uh, you know, instead of going up, why don't we go down? Um, I mean, to some extent, it's nice to be able to have more influence and direct control of your local areas. Like that's where policing comes from. Policing is going to come from your cities, from your mayor. He's nominating your commissioner, your chief of police and everything, uh, or choosing. But, um, on another end, integration is really nice. Arguably one of the most successful reasons why, or one of the biggest reasons why the United States is so successful, something the European Union is trying to emulate is the huge amount of integration that we have across the United States. If I drive from one state to another, I know that my car can drive legally on those roads. I know that um, I can spend any dollar that I earn in Nebraska. I can spend in Arkansas. Um, I have a rough idea of like what all the laws are. I know how to pay the taxes. Like everything is like pretty simple because of the unity that we have from state to state. Um, If we start getting these incredibly different communities from from one area to the next, we run into a lot of friction from one area to the next. Like you're gonna have cops set up trying to find people with drugs or fireworks at every state border. Um, You're gonna have like people not sure what's illegal in one area and what's legal in the other. And, you know, even today that happens to some extent, you know, some bikers will complain that when they cross on a certain States, they have to wear a helmet or they don't or whatever. Um, or, you know, what gun I like, fuck, I moved from Nebraska to California and now I'm in Miami and I'm not even sure where I'm allowed to carry my Glock or any of my weapons or whatever. I don't know what's allowed or what's not allowed. Sometimes I got to look at all the different laws. Um, so I think we should always push for greater integration in areas where it's not like these huge questions of like, you know, what's locally way different from one area to the next. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm generally a fan of integration while understanding that we have to be respectful that there are going to be differences in some communities with how they want to be policed or how they want their economies to run or something to some extent. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a political, uh, integration. What about cultural appropriation? Cause that seemed to be a big talking point over the past few years. Uh, you think that's something we should push for against cultural Wait, Can you, what do you mean by that? 
cultural appropriation, which is, you know, this, this society kind of has a history of doing things this way, um, uh-huh. look, taste, feel, whatever, uh, a different society, um, you know, just pick, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a white man versus, uh, maybe someone from Asia. Um, and so kind of how they're going to look, dress, um, cook I think that. I feel like we just let that play out as it does. Like culture always changes. That's been the history of the whole world. No culture can be frozen in time. Like, you know, people move places, people watch TV shows, people get different types of food. Um, cultures are always going to be like changing. That, that's just something that happens. Yeah. Okay. We got just a few minutes left here. Let me ask you this. What is the worst thing uh, you said you're a progressive? What's the worst thing about progressives right now? Um, They're unimaginably intolerant towards people with different ideas. And what's the genesis of that? You think? Um, there's a whole system of like this concept of like the paradox of intolerance that if you're tolerant or intolerant people, then it actually destroys a tolerant society. So they've kind of tricked themselves into thinking that they have a good righteous reason to be intolerant of anybody that even diverts a little bit from opinion, because if they do, then eventually they're going to be like killed or murdered or something. So, okay. And so what's the, um, conservatives, I guess would be the opposite. So what's the worst thing about the conservatives right now? Um, I would say that a lot of them are bordering on very fascist tendencies. <laughs> um, the constant undermining of all of our institutions saying that like, there's a global elite that's trying to destroy the world, trying to say that like, you know, all of our institutions have failed. And the only like salvation we have is through one politician. Um, these types of things, the, the undermining of institutions and that really, really, really frightens me. Um, th- and that's like the biggest issue that I have, I think with the conservative movement right now is the obsession with Trump. And it is, it is the bit like if Trump runs as an independent, like over half of conservatives will walk to that party and it would be over for the Republican party. Um, that obsession with Trump and the assuming, I guess, of all the institutions is, is very worrisome to me. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. You, you think he's going to run as a independent? I think he's going to run and win um, as a Republican. I don't think he'll run as an independent. The Republican party won't let him do that. If it seems like it's coming down between him and somebody else, I think that the other guy will just step out because Trump will just Trump will run. He doesn't care, he doesn't care about the Republican Party or the health of like he wants to be president again. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of torn because he's going to have to walk back some of his uh, vaccine stuff because he you know he was booed or at least his position was booed. Um, uh, God, I don't know, six months a year ago, whatever it was, he's talking about vaccines, and so I'm curious um, if he still has a read on his voter base like he did going into 2016. I think he lost some of that. Um, but maybe not. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, of course, it, it, who do you want the, the left to run? Um, it has to be Biden again. You can't throw away your incumbent advantage. Like, even if he's old, even if people don't like him as much, like, probably better him than somebody else, I think. But Do you think he can win? Um, I, I, dude, the, our world is crazy. I would never even, I can't even predict like the house and Senate results right now. Like who the fuck knows what will happen in two years. The economy could go one way that would make it so that like Biden is super popular or it could go another way and like, and, or another global disaster could break out or, you know, who knows, maybe in a year, all of us will be dying to monkeypox. So, yeah. Wait, hello. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, we. I think my internet cut for a second there. Um, you there? Yeah, did you get the end of that statement? You said that uh, you think it's it could go one way or another. It's what you said, I think. Yeah, uh, there could be another global catastrophe. Maybe we'll all be dying of monkeypox in a year. Who knows? <laughs> okay, well, where where do you want to send people to? And you stream pretty regularly. What are your set times, or is it kind of day by day? Um, I should be streaming from noon EST to 10 p.m. EST uh, every day I can. And then, um, yeah, you can find me at youtube.com slash destiny. Awesome. Well, thank you for this. I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to watching more of your streams. Oh, I did want to mention real quick. Um, I watched your thing about the South African farmers um, with Laura Southern. Um, uh, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. So I've been to South Africa several times. Got, got a lot of good friends down there. So this would be probably six years old information. Uh, the okay. first time I went down there, we went to one of the um, on a safari, and there was a bunch of farmers. And um, if I remember the story correctly, they were talking about there's a disproportionate amount of farmers that are murdered because uh, if you go to South, have you been to South Africa? No. Okay, so every house in the city is behind an eight foot tall wall with like barbed wire or something like that. But if you go mm-hmm. out to the farms, they can't they can't afford to put up the protection that they have. And so they're, they're able to be targeted at a disproportionate rate because they're, they're out there. They're kind of vulnerable. There's no cops. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's more to it than that. Um, I did, I did, I did hear that. And I brought back those going past sure, those sure. Ones, um, and just kind of how, how they were being uh, viewed as vulnerable. And I think at the time uh, they had like a day of the year, they'd come out and call for international support, like a protest or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they or not. But anyways, I just, I caught that the other day and I thought that was a, a flashback to being down there a few years ago. So for what that's worth. Um, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, thank you for your time, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man.